Uh, we're in the second week of a series called East of Eden. We Just prior to this, we were talking through the first three chapters of Genesis, looking at some of life's biggest questions, what we're created for, what went wrong, and the hope that we have that God has promised from the very beginning. Now we're talking about life east of Eden, what life is like outside of paradise. God kicks Adam and Eve outside the east end of Eden, and now we live in a life east of Eden. As a matter of fact, Genesis 4 all the way through Revelations 20 is life east of Eden. And so we want to look at what life is like east of Eden and what hope we have east of Eden. We're going to start today just by jumping in. In Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 7 through 17. Genesis 4, 7 through 17. If you do well, will you not be accepted? This is God talking to Cain. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we just praise you for your word, God. It is a gift of your grace to us, Lord. You did not leave us to wonder the story, your story, of grace, of mercy. You wrote it down that we could read it, that we could understand it, that we could proclaim it, God. Lord, we pray today that we would see the truth about who we are, and we would see the hope that we have in Christ. We love you. Transform us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're kind of just going to jump right in this morning. Cain was very intentional about hiding his sin. If you look and see here in verse 8, the NIV maybe translates it, Better for us. The NIV translates verse 8 saying, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And so Cain comes to his brother Abel and he doesn't kill him right away. He sweet talks him and he says, Hey, let's go out into the field. 
Why does Cain do that? Why does Cain not just kill Abel as soon as he sees him? Why does he take Abel out to the field? And the reason is, is because Cain is trying to hide his sin. Hide his sin from his parents. Hide his sin from God. He continues to hide this sin. In verse 9, when the Lord comes to him and says, Where is Abel your brother? And Cain says, I don't know. (laughs) He's hiding his sin. He's living this life of secret sin. You know, we're not so unlike Cain. Many of us go to great lengths to hide the secret sin in our life. Let me just give you one example from a money standpoint. Uh, I've met with a I meet with lots of people, and within the past month, I've talked to two people who have said, yes, I I had this money, and I helped this person out uh, who really needed help, but I didn't tell my spouse, because if my spouse knew, they would be really upset, they would be really mad, they'd be really angry, right? And so it's not wrong to give away money to help other people, but they're doing it without their spouse's knowledge. And so they go to these great lengths to hide it and to cover it up. Uh, Personally... Um, I got a confession. I About once a month, I have this craving for McDonald's French fries, right? Now, that, that is kind of funny, I guess. But um, I'm not alone, right? There's over 100 million served. So, but I have this craving for McDonald's French fries. And I know, like, my wife and I, we live on a pretty tight budget. And, uh, and so we try to be pretty honest about everything that we spend. But when I go to pick up these McDonald's French fries... I, I, about once a month, I always pay in cash. That way it doesn't show up on the credit card receipt. And this is the first time my wife is hearing of this. So I figured I'd just confess in front of all of you. But it's to hide it, right? Like eating McDonald's french fries is not a sin. Well, maybe it is, but I don't think it is. I think it's really good, a gift from God. But, you know, and, and I cover it up by just paying in cash so that it never shows up on a credit card receipt or anything like that. But, you know, if we were honest, a lot of us would have secret sin in our life that is far more embarrassing, far more shameful, far more awful than even those examples. And we go to great, great extents to cover up our secret sin. And I think the reason why we do it is because we think that as long as our sin remains a secret, it won't hurt anybody. As long as our secret addictions, passions, desires remain a secret, nobody will be hurt. And while that may be true, I have wonderful, terrifying news for you. Your sin is never a secret to God. Look in verse 10 here. Cain thought that his sin was a secret. And he says, God says to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain's blood was crying out to God. Our sin cries out to God. God sees our sin very clearly. We've said it before. We'll say it again. God sees more sin on your good days than you see on your bad days. God sees all of your secret sin in life. And this is terrifying, but also wonderful news. There's a story of three pastors who go to this pastor's convention. And, uh, and one of the pastors says to the other two pastors, he goes, hey, let's, let's share our secret sin with one another. 
And so the first pastor goes and he says, my secret sin is that I really love to go gambling is how the illustration goes. And so he says, after church, I like to head out of town. I like to hit the slot machines, cha-ching. Like, that's my secret. That's what I love to do. The second pastor says, my secret sin is that I'm lazy. I don't like to work. And so I just copy uh, sermons off the Internet and I preach it and take it as my own credit. That's my secret sin. And then they turn to the third guy and they say, what is your secret sin? And he said, my secret sin is that I'm a gossip and I cannot wait till tomorrow morning. (laughs) Our secret sins are never a secret, especially to God. Never, ever. And with our sin, there's really two options that we have. And we see this in the story of Cain who's trying to keep this sin a secret, trying to cover it up. And our two options is either to continue to rebel against God or to repent and turn to God. And so we're going to look at the story of Cain here and see how Cain responds and the devastation of a constant rebellion against God and to see the glorious promise of those who actually turn to God. And so let's first look at Cain's rebellion If you remember last week, we looked at Cain's rebellion in his heart of worship, that he offered this half-hearted worship to God. And God had no regard for his worship, is what it says. And yet God comes to Cain, and he offers him an opportunity to repent, to turn to God. And he does that by coming to Cain, and he says to him, if you do well, and if you rule over sin, don't you know everything will be okay? He gives him a chance to turn back to the Lord, but Cain doesn't. Right? Cain doesn't repent. He continues in his rebellion. In his face, it says, he gets very angry and his face fell. Again, Cain's rebellion continues in his family life as he goes out and he murders Abel. And again, God comes to him seeking repentance from Cain. He says to Cain, where is your brother? As if God doesn't know. Right? And God says, where is your brother? Because God wants Cain to say I've killed him. I've done something horrible. But Cain says, I don't know. And so God gives an opportunity to repent there, to turn back to God. And then as we continue the story today, we see that Cain's heart continues in rebellion and his relationship with God as he begins to question God's fairness. And he does this in two ways that we're going to look at this morning. First off, he questions God's fairness by questioning or twisting God's word. If you look in verse 9 in your Bibles, it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And so what he does is he gets extremely defensive. Uh, Kids, maybe this is a lesson to you. If you get defensive, we probably know you're guilty, right? If you come into the room and say, I promise I didn't eat any candy, we, we know something's up. And so Cain gets very defensive, says, am I my brother's literally legal guardian? Am I my brother's legal guardian? And so one way of Cain sort of uh, running away from repenting is to take God's word and twist it and to take it to an extreme, an exaggerated amount to run away from ever turning back to God. And he makes God seem unfair and absurd in his request. If you remember, the serpent did the same thing in the garden. The serpent said to Adam and Eve, Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? God didn't say that. But the serpent takes 
God's commands and twist them to make them seem unfair and unjust and unrighteous. God said you can eat from any of tree, any tree. I'll provide for you abundantly. Just do not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Cain twists God's commands. When I was a kid, I remember um, there were many times where uh, I would do my chores and I would do them half-heartedly, right? And so my parents would come to me and they would say, you know, Dan, didn't we tell you to mow the lawn? I said, yeah, I mowed the lawn. And they said, well, you know, you didn't mow the side of the house. And I'm like, you know, and so I get defensive and I'm like, well, sorry, I'm not perfect like you, right? Kind of silly, but this is, this is exactly what Cain is doing. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I his legal guardian? All God said was, where's your brother? <laughs> and so he gets extremely defensive right away. Many of us um, try to justify our sin by questioning God's word. You know, did God actually say that I have to love this person? God, you don't know how horrible my neighbor is. You don't know how horrible this person at work is. Do I really have to love him? God, I know you say in your word that we have to love our husband and our wife, but you don't know, Lord, what it's like. And so we question God's fairness and his commands. And yes, they're absolutely radical, but they're true and they're fair and they're just and they're good. And so Cain questions God's fairness by questioning his commands. He also questions God's justice. After the sentence is dealt out to Cain, that he will be cursed from the ground, which we'll talk about more. Cain says this to the Lord in verse 13. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You know, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden for eating of the forbidden fruit, they put up no protest. But when Cain, who has murdered his own brother, is given this penalty, he comes to God, not repentant, not sorrowful, but complaining feeling sorry for himself, having pity for himself, saying, I don't deserve life to be this hard. And he actually deserves a lot more, which we'll talk about in a second. And so we see Cain's continued rebellious heart throughout his life. But we also see the consequence of Cain's rebellion. Because Cain sinned against God, because Cain would not repent, because he would stay rebellious, God curses Cain, through the ground. It's kind of an interesting thing, but right here he says, it will be through the ground. The ground will be my instrument to curse you. Look at verse 11. It says, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood and blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And so God says, You will be cursed from the ground because you will no longer have a harvest and you will no longer have a home. If you remember, Cain was a farmer. This was his trade. This is what he did for a living. And God says to him, no longer will your harvest. Your your harvest will be frustrated. Your job will be frustrated. You will have to work harder for food, to put food on your table. In Genesis 3.19, God says this to Adam and Eve. He curses the ground, saying that it will be more difficult for man to labor, to gain fruit, to gain things to eat, that there will be thorns and thistles, that they will earn it by the sweat of their brow. And now he furthers that curse by saying, you won't even get yield, Cain. And so this was the curse pronounced 
on Cain. You know, Cain thought that his sin was a secret. He thought there would be no consequences. But the consequences are far greater than he could even imagine. Cain also had no home, which meant that he was to be a wanderer or a fugitive. And while this certainly is that Cain was a physical nomad who wandered the earth for a great deal of time, I think it's far greater and far worse than even that. I think the wandering that God has for Cain is not only a physical wandering, but a spiritual wandering. Here's why I believe that. First off, when you look in this passage, you'll see um, Cain actually says that uh, from your face I shall be hidden. That was not a part of God's curse. But it would make sense if Cain was wandering not only on the earth, but from God as well in his heart. But further down as well, as you look in verse 16, Cain settles in the land of Nod, east of Eden, right? You notice as we get further east of Eden, it's, it's worse. And so if Wisconsin's bad, Michigan's worse, right? But they start going east of Eden, and things get very, very horrible. They start separating themselves from God more and more. And so God settles him in Cain. And so if God says, you will be a wanderer, and then Cain settles, how can it be true unless there is also the spiritual wandering in Cain's heart? The land of Nod actually means to wander in the Hebrew. And so even as Cain sets up a place to live, even as Cain sets up a family, he will still constantly be wandering in his heart because Cain's punishment wasn't primarily physical. It was spiritual. In seminary, I worked at a golf course and uh, I remember my manager's name was Ron and Ron kind of had it all. Ron had the a great job. He was a, a he was a golf instructor, which he loved to do. A Ron, Ron had a wonderful family, a wife and kids that he had on his desk. Ron had uh, good financial prosperity as as he was paid very well for his job. In many ways, people would look at Ron and say, "Ron has it all." I remember one day, I don't know if it was raining or if it was after hours, but it was very quiet. It was just me and Ron in the club shop and. And Ron looked at me, and he knew that I was in seminary. And he says, I know you're a Christian. Do you have a lot of peace? And I thought, hmm, what a curious question. But I said, yeah, absolutely. And he, he told me about how he had tried many different religions. He had gone to everything under the sun, looking for peace in his heart. He was constantly wandering, and he could never find peace. You see, our hearts are created in a battle with God. We are created with hostility towards God because we are sin sinners from birth. We have sinned against God, and God's righteous punishment towards us makes us enemies to God. And so we are wandering like Cain in this life, looking for something to fill that God-shaped hole in our heart, looking for something to satisfy us. And we look many places. And the good news is that Christ gives us a home. Christ breaks down the barrier of hostility, and he gives us peace with God, peace that our hearts are searching for. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, right? you who were wandering in your heart, 
have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between us and God by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. St. Augustine, a great father in the faith, puts it this way. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. Do you have peace with God? Or is your heart constantly wandering, looking for a place that will satisfy that God-shaped hole in your heart? Are you looking to men, to women, to shopping, to athletics, to whatever it might be, many of God's great gifts? Are you looking to those things to fill the void in your life, to look for peace in your heart? Because what God says is that the only place your heart will find peace is in me through the blood of Christ at the cross. Christ has taken on our hostility. He has paid for our sin so that once again we can have peace with the God of the universe, that once again we can be at home with God and that we would have an eternal home in heaven with the Lord, what we desire, what we crave. And so God promises to us this peace. But for Cain, Cain will be a wanderer because of his rebellion, his constant rebellion. And this is a consequence of Cain's secret sin. And so we see the consequence of Cain's rebellion, but we also see the grace in the midst of Cain's rebellion. I like to give you sometimes these theological terms so that you can be really cool at parties and use these because people are always attracted by this sort of stuff. But there is this phrase that we use called common grace. Okay, Common grace. And the simple definition is that it's grace that's common to everyone that it's common to humankind, that God gives it to all of us. He gives it to those that are rebellious. He gives it to those that are repentant. He gives it to those of us who are tall. He gives it to those of us who are short. He gives it to everyone, okay? And he gives this common grace to people that they might enjoy his goodness, right? And so this is common grace. And we see God giving common grace to those who don't deserve it, and those who do, he sends rain and snow. You know, we go outside on a beautiful day and the sun is shining and the leaves are wonderful. We go to the parks and we see all the beauty of God's creation. This is common grace given to all of us. And God shows his common grace to Cain. And it points it out here in two ways. First, Lord protects Cain's life. Cain is fearing death. And in verse 15, The Lord says to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. And so ironically, the first murderer was extremely paranoid that someone would murder him. You know, sin is like this. Sin kind of snowballs. If you cheat other people, you're always afraid that somebody is cheating you. If you gossip and slander other people, you're always afraid people are gossiping and slandering you. You just become extremely paranoid. And this was what Cain was going through. He was a murderer, and he was afraid that someone else was going to murder him. But God showed grace to Cain. Common grace. 
What we learn is that if you are here today, if you are living, if you are breathing, it is a gift of God's grace. Cain didn't deserve to be alive. If you look in the Old Testament, if you look in Genesis chapter 2, God tells us that the wages of sin is death. That Cain deserved to die. We learn that in the New Testament as well. And so what we learn is that none of us deserve to be alive because all of us have sinned against God. But each breath is a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. And so God is gracious towards Cain. And yet Cain whines, right? Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And God's like, you're right, you deserve much worse, but I'm going to be gracious towards you. So God shows his common grace by sustaining Cain's life with some sort of tattoo. Not sure what it is. You know, maybe it's that 80s t-shirt, God's property. I don't know. But there's some tattoo on him or something where people know, don't mess with Cain, right? Don't mess with Texas and don't mess with Cain. Secondly, we see God's common grace as the Lord gives Cain a home and a family. Verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There it is again. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And so what again we learn here is that our wife, our husbands, our children, our homes are all a gift of God's grace. And God gives it to people across the board. Not everybody has a family. Not everybody has a husband or a wife. But this is God's common grace to everyone to show the wonders of his mercy, the wonders of his love. And for us, this is something that we need to continue to share with people, that, that family is a gift of God's grace. You know, when you have a culture in which uh, marriage is something that you stay in until it's inconvenient, when you have a culture in which children are a choice, when children are not a leaving, living, breathing gift from God, we need to continue to remind people that this is a gift of God's grace. And so God pours out his common grace on Cain. God pours out your common grace on you. His common grace on you, sorry. When... Um, my mom came up a few weeks ago, and she shared a story that uh, I, I don't remember. Uh, but evidently, there was a time where my family had gone to um, Ponderosa. It was kind of our favorite restaurant. We would go there, and we would eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner in one meal, take care of it for the day, go home. And uh, there was my mom, my dad, and five kids. So there's a lot of us that would walk in. And I remember, well, I don't remember. So my mom tells me about one time when we're sitting there, and we said, hey, mom, can we get a soda? You know, can we get a soda with the buffet? And her response is, you know, no, it's a lot of money. We got a lot of people. We're not going to buy you soda. And uh, we moved on. And evidently, this elderly couple next to us overheard it. And so they went and they purchased all the kids and my mom and dad sodas and brought us the cup so that we could go and enjoy soda that day. It was a common grace given to all of us. It didn't matter if we were good kids or bad kids, if we were old or young. It was a gift of common grace. God gives everybody grace who's living and breathing that we might enjoy and know him. You know, it is amazing when I sit down and think about how much I complain, how much I complain about road traffic, how much I complain about computer problems, how much I complain about whatever. Because 
God says to us that the day that you are alive is a gift of my grace. Certainly there are days that things will make us sad or things will make us disappointed, but it changes our perspective when we understand that our next breath, that our next step, that our next meal is a gift of God's grace. That's why when we get together, we say grace because we don't deserve this food, but it's a gift from God. And so God blesses Cain and he blesses us with this common grace. And so, like Cain, we go to elaborate plans to hide our sin many times, to keep our sin a secret. But like Cain, God always knows our sin. And there's always consequences for our sin. And there's always a choice to rebel against God or to repent and turn to God in our secret sin. How does this apply to us? When we look and we see God's common grace, God's common grace to Cain of protection, to sustain his life of a family, of a home, when we look at God's common grace to us that we would have people in our life who love us and care for us, that we get to sit and eat barbecue after the service, his common grace is to point to his saving grace. It's not an end in itself. See, when we're done eating, we'll let our dog Tyson in because we have three little kids and there's always food all over the floor. And so our dog will come running in and he'll be go around eating all the food he can find. But surely he always misses something. And so I'll say, Tyson, you know, get that piece of meat in the corner. Go get that piece of meat in the corner. And I'm pointing to it. And what does Tyson do? Tyson comes up and he starts sniffing my finger, right? He's completely missing what I'm pointing to. God's common grace in your life is to point to his saving grace, that he has sent a savior in Jesus Christ to die for you, to rescue you, to give you peace with God, to keep you from being a wanderer on this earth, to have a home with the Lord forever. If you are living and breathing, God has protected you and shown you common grace. But the purpose is to point you to his saving grace, that you would trust in him. Romans 2.4 summarizes this very well. Puts it this way. Or do you show content for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, his common grace? Do you show content not realizing that God's kindness points to or leads you towards repentance? You see how this is coming full circle. God's grace to Adam and Eve, God's grace to Cain and Abel was to point them to God's saving grace that they would trust in Jesus, that they would know him. It goes on, verse 5, but because of your stubbornness, this is Cain, and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be reserved. And so here we are. And I need to ask you this question because I love you guys so much. Where is your heart Do you have a heart of rebellion that is fleeing away from God, that is holding on to all these secret sins, not wanting them to turn them over to God? Because if that's where you're at, this is what Romans 2, 4 says, that you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath and that it is just. It is a righteous judgment against you. Or, like Abel, are you a repentant sinner who says, Lord, save me. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your salvation. 
Don't be rebellious like Cain. Be repentant like Abel. And know a peace of God that transcends all understanding. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have given us a home. That you have given us a home in heaven. We're not there yet, but we also have a peace that surpasses all understanding because we now are no longer restless, God. Our souls are no longer restless because they are at home with you, Lord, if we trust in you, God. I pray for those here who maybe are harboring secret sin in their life against you in which they think God will never know. I could, uh, they don't even pray it because they think they can keep it a secret from you, God. I pray that you would show them today that there is no such thing as secret sin. And that your desire is that they would repent, that they would say, forgive me for my sin. I turn it over to you. I turn to you and I surrender my life to you, God. I pray that your spirit would do that, would convict us, turn us around and push us towards you. In Jesus name. Amen. If you're here today and you are repentant, you say, Lord, I am a sinner. And I don't want to hide it, God. I want to turn it over to you. I want to lay it at the foot of the cross. This is for you. This is the Lord's Supper given to you to nourish you in your faith, to nourish you by his grace. We're told that we're to come to the Lord's table with a heart of repentance, love, and new obedience. And so I'd encourage you during the song to pray, to ask God, to, to say to the Lord, forgive me for the sin in my life. Forgive me for the sin that I have kept secret, God. I release it to you. I lay it at the cross, trusting that it is fully paid for by Jesus. Give me freedom. Jesus, when he was coming together for his final Passover feast, is gathered with the disciples. Matthew 26, 26 says this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As we come and we take the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder of what Christ has done at the cross, but it's also a nourishment through God's grace of all who receive it by faith. If you're here today, and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, we would encourage you to not take the Lord's Supper because you eat and drink judgment on yourself is what the scripture says. And we love you enough to not want that for you. But if you trust in Jesus, come and be nourished. The outer ring is grape juice. The inner rings are wine for your discernment. But come and be fed.